Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Institute for Social and Economic Research and Policy, the Barnard Department of History, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Barnard Professor of History Narabi Milanich's book, Paternity, The Elusive Quest for the Father. First, we'll hear Nara speaking about her book at the panel, and then I'll bring you my interview with Columbia Professor of French and of History, Emmanuel Sada. Um, so I actually want to start by narrating the story of um, Antonio Cipolli, which um, some of you have read, some of you have heard. Um, there's a postscript to the story that's not in the book that I want to tell. Um, and for those of you that have heard the damn story and the damn postscript, I'm going to unpack it in a slightly different way, I think, than, than I've done before. Um, and the reason that I want to tell the story, I think, is, is because um, I want to give you a taste of these stories. Um, at the end of the day, as historians, we have the wonderful privilege of going into the archives and um, excavating these stories. Um, and so in some ways, I feel like it's my duty to share the wonder and excitement of that process. Um, uh, okay, so I'm going to start off with the story um, that uh, Emmanuel uh, makes reference to, which begins in October 1945 in Pisa in northern Italy, um, when a housewife named Quinta Orsini gives birth to uh, a little boy. Um, it's her second son, uh, who she names Antonio. Um, but then her husband, Remo Cipolli, eh, arrives soon after. He takes one look at the baby um, and becomes very angry. Um, because while both the husband and wife are white, Italians, um, the child appears, even to an inexpert eye, according to the sources, um, more black than white. A doctor is called in by Remo, the husband. He immediately pronounces the child to be Negroid, confirming uh, the husband's suspicion that this child has apparently been sired by a black father. And Remo then files suit against his wife for divorce, for adultery, which is at the time a crime for women, but not for men in Italy, um, as well as to repudiate his paternity, his legal paternity of the child. And Antonio is sent to a local orphanage. So this region um, of Italy is occupied by allied troops um, at this moment, among them the um, African-American troops of the segregated US Army. Um, And in the investigation that ensues about this baby and his paternity, Um, as filed by Remo, it emerges that Quinta, the mother, has clearly had a relationship, a quite public relationship, with um, an African-American soldier. So soon after, Remo wins the adultery case. He wins the divorce suit. But it turns out that his attempt to repudiate paternity of this baby um, is more complicated than he might have thought. Two years after the birth of the baby, Um, Antonio, a court reaches to what to many observers seems to be an astonishing conclusion. Um, It says that Remo, uh, Quinta's husband, is the father of the child to which she has given birth. Um, And this is because of this, of course, the so-called presumption of legitimacy, a legal precept dating back to Roman law that holds that the husband of a married woman who has a child is always necessarily and automatically the father of her child. So this dispute over Antonio's paternity becomes a national sensation. Um, Antonio is dubbed the Little Moor of Pisa. Um, The headlines of various local and national newspapers um, denounce the verdict. A legislator 
um, proposes a law to change um, the presumption of, of uh, paternity or uh, legitimacy in order to avoid these kinds of ludicrous and unjust um, outcomes in the future. In 1950, there's a movie made, terrible racist movie that you can watch on YouTube um, that is loosely based on the, uh, on the case. Um, and it, what's more, the story of the brown baby of Pisa uh, long outlives the post-war period. Um, so there are references to it in contemporary Italian novels. Um, I found discussion of it in uh, contemporary Italian jurisprudence texts. And as recently as a few weeks ago, um, I was having dinner with some friends from Italy, um, and they were joined by some friends who live in Pisa. And I mentioned the story, and they said, oh, yeah, the brown baby. We know all about that story. They didn't know the names of the people involved, but they had absolutely heard of this famous anecdote in the post-war period. So the story of the Little Moor of Pisa is alive and well, and it's what, just one of the stories that I tell in this book. Um, they include uh, you know, an inheritance dispute from Belepoque, um, Buenos Aires, a baby swap, a famous baby swap from Chicago in the 1920s, a case of a mysterious amnesiac that's not unlike the Tischborn um, case, um, a mysterious amnesiac from, who, who flees fascist Italy and arrives in Brazil where a dentist um, through a paternity test um, discovers or purports to discover his identity. Um, one chapter explores paternity under national socialism, um, specifically the Nazis' obsession, obsession with the idea that Jews might be um, hiding or falsifying their paternity um, in order to obfuscate their true racial identity, um, et cetera, et cetera. So this book took me um, into the United States, into Europe, far afield from my comfort zone um, as a Latin Americanist. And some people have asked me, um, having finished this book, so are you going to go back to Latin America? But the truth is, I never really left. Um, this project was less about moving away from Latin America than it was about inserting Latin America into a transatlantic frame. Um, so my earlier work was dedicated, I, I would say, to kind of challenging or to trying to challenge the Eurocentrism of the field of family history. Um, to show how Latin America can challenge or does challenge the basic categories of the field or might suggest new analytic questions to the field. Um, and in this sense, this book, I feel like, takes a kind of opposite tact. Here, I put Latin America in a squarely transatlantic frame, not necessarily in order to insist on its essential sim similarity with North Atlantic societies, to the extent that we can even talk about uh, Latin America, of course, that's another issue. Um, but rather, I, I insert it in this transatlantic frame to insist on comparability, um, as well as to explore the linkage, you know, the dynamics of legal and scientific circulation. So here we circle back to the stories. One of the biggest challenges of writing this book was the writing of this book. Um, so debates and discussions about transnational and global history have focused, um, to my mind, largely on questions of methodology, how you go about researching this, right? Um, and, and framing how you, what, what's the scope of your, you know, of, your, of your history that you're gonna tell. But I think there's much less discussion about the challenges of writing mm. this kind of history. How do you construct a coherent narrative that moves not just across time, but also across space? For me, that answer was to tell stories. Um, and the stories, besides hopefully drawing the reader in, really serve, um, to me, an organizing function. Um, to assemble a history across 100 years and a dozen or so locations, while at the same time, obviously, trying to make 
analytic arguments um, um, and explore you know, themes and threads across those kinds of places. So I unpack um, those stories for what they tell us about the politics of paternity in the 20th century. Um, and I begin with uh, the premise that paternity is a, is a, is a question of long-standing cultural, legal, scientific, medical, political interest. And also, of course, according to a long cultural tradition, an intractable problem. Because whereas the mother's identity can always be known by the fact of birth, you can never actually know who the father is. Or so goes the cultural um, uh, trope. Um, and so I talk, at least in the beginning of the book, about how this quest has animated medical um, experts since Hippocrates. Um, it is uh, interested uh, jurists, uh, you know, in Roman law, and Jewish law, Islamic law. Literary um, fathers have brooded over their paternity since it's, you know, Shakespeare, but uh, especially in the 19th century. I'm thinking of authors like Strindberg, um, and which I read thanks to my Swedish colleague um, for the first time, and Machado de Assis, a Brazilian novelist. Um, of course, Engels asserted a central role for paternity. Um, as a primordial um, uh, or, or a central part of the story of the rise of private property. Um, Freud, of course, also put uncertain paternity um, at the center of his story about the human psyche and its foundations. Um, early 20th century anthropologists were also obsessed with the notion of um, that different cultures um, had different fundamental understandings or rather misunderstandings of paternity. And yet, as the story of Antonio Cipolli reminds us, paternity isn't just a topic for sort of highfalutin, highbrow intellectual rumination. It is a high-stakes question um, and a very deeply personal um, issue for men, for women, for children, for reasons that are, of course, patrimonial, practical, existential. Um, questions of paternity have historically arisen in, in disputes over child support and inheritance, some of the cases that we just heard. Um, the orphaned and adopted have asked these questions um, in relation to new identities. Um, and of course, most recently, um, assisted reproductive technologies um, have raised these old questions about identity um, in new ways. But of course, paternity stakes are public as well as private. Um, and this is really one of the themes um, of my book, that it matters to states and societies who is your daddy. And that's why the dispute over Antonio's paternity is a story not just about three people, Quinta, uh, uh, Remo, and Antonio, but also about a whole series of public institutions, the civil courts, the Catholic Church, the US military, the press, um, I don't know, the Cinematographers Guild, et cetera, et cetera. All of them play a role um, in, this, in this story. So we often think of kinship as a pre-modern or pre-Western or, or non-Western form of association. Um, but one of the things that I contend is that it remains at the heart of modern social and economic um, citizenship. Um, so of course, anthropologists study kinship and historians study family. Well, why is that exactly? So I want to reinsert kinship into um, into you know, a 20th century history of so-called West. Um, parentage matters politically because it confers access to things like social security, war pensions, nationality. It matters economically, of course, because um, historically children bereft of kin ties have become um, public wards or public charges. Of course, it wasn't Antonio's parentage in general that was um, in dispute. It was his paternity specifically. 
Significantly, the question, who's your daddy, who is the father, has no parallel query concerning the mother. Paternity has been understood as naturally uncertain, whereas maternity, of course, is at least supposedly obvious and unproblematic. Um, and finally, in patriarchal societies, another important distinction between maternity and paternity that make them, um, what's the word, non-congruous um, uh, um, ca categories. Um, in patriarchal societies, which is to say, I would say most societies, there are many resources that paternity confers, right? Um, economic support, patrimony, a name, an identity, um, a nationality that are not uh, traditionally transmitted by maternity. So my story begins in the 1920s, when science starts to play a powerful but contested role um, in the quest for the father. Beginning in the first decades of the century, scientists endeavor to identify new methods for discerning biological paternity. And a central assumption of these methods is that the truth of kinship lies somewhere on the physical bodies of the father and the child. And the new science of paternity reflects not just, I would say, a new way of revealing paternity, but a much broader set of claims. That paternity is a knowable quality, right? It is not this unknowable thing anymore. It is now a knowable quality. That it's in the public interest that we know who the father is, and that it's up to the scientific expert um, to make that discovery. Most fundamentally, these new methods, again, that, that, that emerge in the first, beginning in the first decades of the 20th century, imply a belief about what paternity is in the first place, which is to say a physical relationship. Um, and not, or at least not just, a social one. So I think there are um, a few lessons that we can distill from Antonio's story. Um, and they make up some of the themes of the book, um, and I think we've heard uh, some of them. The first is that the impetus to know the biological father that emerges with great potency in the 1920s is by no means all-powerful, as Emmanuel notes. Um, Antonio Cipolli's story suggests that biological paternity might be purposefully uh, obfuscated or even ignored. Um, in the hundreds of pages that I um, read about Antonio's case, at no point is the name of the GI who fathered him ever mentioned. And that seems like a really critical omission. His identity is suppressed, not out of some conspiratorial impulse, but because it's frankly irrelevant. No one cares who the father, or at least the public authorities writing this story or recording it, don't care who this man is. What matters is that he is black and that he is not the husband of uh, uh, the white husband, Raymond. Um, in fact, there are a whole series, I think, of historical scenarios in which biological paternity has been strategically obfuscated. The father soldier is just one, the father colonizer, the father priest, um, and of course the father slave owner, Jefferson being the most famous. Um, I'm looking at you, Herb. Um, uh, you know, case of an obfuscated, a purposefully obfuscated um, paternity. So I conclude that paternal uncertainty may be a long-standing cultural fixation, but it sure isn't a biological axiom. It's a social and political idea, and so one of the things that I want to do in this book is take paternity out of biology and put it back in history, where I think it belongs. A second lesson um, that I take from the Antonio Cipolli case, and that sort of wends its way through the book, is the centrality of race to the politics of paternity. Um, I knew starting this book that this was gonna be a book about family and gender and childhood. I didn't intuit or predict how central um, race would be to this story. Um, Italians in the 1940s thought the spectacle of a white woman giving birth to a brown baby was unprecedented. In fact, of course, it's a trope that goes back to antiquity. 
Um, in the 20th century, race and paternity are seen as innate physical qualities, essential truths um, that can be concealed, ambiguous, or unknown. Um, and I think the story of, of Cipolli um, speaks to this persistent connection, as do so many of the other cases that I look at, from the Nazis to the immigration case, um, the case of genetic testing and immigration, um, where we see how paternity has figured centrally into states' 20th century attempts to um, create and police boundaries of race and nation. And finally, the tale of Antonio reflects um, the enduring importance of social and legal definitions of paternity. The reason the court found Remo to be the father was because of this enduring presumption of marital legitimacy, um, uh, a legal doctrine that defines paternity not only in 1940s Italy, but is indeed alive and well, and has been you know, as recently as the 1980s in the Supreme Court of the United States uh, reaffirmed um, that you know, the father is always the mother's husband, regardless of what the DNA test says. Um, in other words, biological re paternity remains one way, and not necessarily a hegemonic way of thinking about um, paternity. So by the end of the 20th century, the scientists' quest for definitive proof of the father um, seemed to have borne fruit with this discovery of DNA fingerprinting, right, which pro promises a certainty of the father with a 99.99% probability. Um, so has the biological father triumphed? Is the millennial uh, problem of paternal uncertainty thus resolved? Um, ultimately, I argue, because I'm a historian and you have to argue that nothing ever changes and nothing is ever resolved, I argue that no, the impact of genetic science has been much more complex. Rather than resolving ambiguity or uncertainty, um, the scientific quest for the father has actually merely exposed long-standing tensions between different ways of thinking um, about these issues, between the social and the biological, between the scientific and the legal, uh, between the imperatives on the one hand of truth and those of justice or morality or the social order on the other. So ultimately, rather than resolving these tensions, I think genetic science has really reified them. Um, so that's another takeaway of, um, of, of the book. But let me return to Antonio's story because who the hell wants to hear about um, you know, abstract ideas when you can hear a story? When I wrote this chapter two summers ago, I wondered, could the protagonist still be alive? Antonio Cipolli um, eh, eh, was born in um, October 1945. I knew that biracial GI babies suffered high rates of, of, of mortality, but had he perhaps survived childhood? Um, as I recount in the book briefly, um, I came across a Facebook account for Antonio and wrote a tentative message to him. Are you by any chance Antonio Cipolli, the son of uh, Maria Quinta Orsini, born October 9th, blah, 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 blah. Several days pass, silence. And then one day, the phone rings. <coughs> At 4 AM, si sono yo, reads the message. Yes, it's me. It was Antonio. Um, Antonio Cipolli, who had spent a lifetime wondering about his origins and proved very eager to talk. He filled in the story where my archival trail left off. He told me that he had grown up in an orphanage where he was one of a handful of so-called mulatini. Um, charitable women would come to the orphanage um, and touch his hair and treat him, as he, he said, like a poodle. His mother visited him uh, a few times a year, but he knew nothing about his origins or the dispute surrounding his paternity, and he couldn't understand why he wasn't allowed to go home and live with um, his, his mother and older brother. And she would tell him, Tony, cuando sarai grande, when you'll be all grown up, I'll tell you everything. I'll explain everything. 
So Antonio leaves the orphanage at age 17 to return home, even though this home has never really been his home. On the way home, this sounds like a movie, he runs into an old acquaintance who says, where are you going? Um, and he says, I'm going to see my mother. And the acquaintance says, your mother has just died in a car accident. Like, if this were a movie, it would, this would be the un, in, an improbable plot twist, right? So Antonio Cipolli arrives home just in time to attend uh, the funeral of his mother, and whatever information that she's planning to share with him goes with her to her grave. So at the time of his birth, most observers, and I think this speaks to the question that Emmanuel asked, um, most observers adamantly believed that the truth of Antonio Cipolli's biological paternity um, should be publicly exposed, legally acknowledged. Um, it is therefore um, a, a deeply um, ironic, I think, that Antonio himself was never privy to this knowledge. For more than 70 years, he confronted a suffocating silence um, about his origins. No one, not the nuns and priests who raised him, um, not the family or the local community with whom he shared this kind of um, complicated relationship, no one ever revealed to him the truth of his paternity. So when I contacted him two years ago, Antonio had no knowledge of um, the cause celebre that had um, surrounded his birth and his family. He did not know that he had been baptized a little more of Pisa in the national newspapers. He did not know that there was a movie based roughly on his story. The mystery of his identity was always just that, a private question, a private tragedy, um, and merely, in fact, the question of the paternity, again, here this gets to Emmanuel's question, the question of his paternity is really just one part of a much broader um, and deeply pan painful experience of, of abandonment and estrangement from his family. So paternity isn't a mystery to him, but it is a mystery to his daughter. This is uh, a question that his daughter, Dunya, spent years wondering about. Um, and she wondered about this unknown grandfather, yearned to know who he was. She spent hours um, looking at photos online of African-American GIs stationed in Italy, and then she would send them to me and say, hey, do you think he looks like um, my dad? What do you think? I think the nose is similar. Um, so she was thrilled to connect with me and excited to, to hear and, you know, astonished to see this movie and hear about these news, uh, newspapers, etc. But I really, uh, but I think meeting me was a tremendous frustration for her because I couldn't answer the fundamental question she wanted to know, namely, who is my grandfather? I didn't know that. I couldn't answer that because he wasn't, his name isn't mentioned anywhere in the, in the sources. So that's where the book ends, right? With Antonio and Dunia still looking, perhaps Antonio looking less than Dunia. Um, who's the, the family member who's really obsessed with this question. Um, but then there's a postscript. Uh, at some point in the last uh, few years that I, since I've met her, um, I suggested to Dunya that she do a 23andMe test. Um, so she does a 23andMe, um, and last June I get an excited WhatsApp message from her. She found him. She found her grandfather, the soldier, who had fathered her father. Um, he was, not surprisingly, uh, no longer alive. Um, after, but after returning home uh, from the war uh, in Italy, he had actually been wounded in combat and, um, and sent uh, back home, he had uh, gone to California, married, and had uh, six children. So suddenly, the abandoned Antonio had six half-siblings and countless uh, nieces and nephews. So for me, the timing of this discovery was extraordinarily ironic. And here we move back to my, my uh, work on immigration. 
Um, the, uh, um, Dunya's discovery of the father, of her grandfather, came amidst the uproar over Trump's zero tolerance policy um, at the US-Mexico border, in which, of course, the United States began, um, or didn't begin, but ramped up the separation of um, families of children from their migrant parents. So in other words, this astonishing story of family reunification happened and was unfolding amidst um, the slow-moving catastrophe of um, family separation. Um, talk about waves of history. So this past June, Dunya took her dad, Antonio, to California to um, meet his half-siblings. Um, they visited their father's grave. Now the oldest uh, brother, 74-year-old Antonio, walked his sister down the aisle um, at her wedding. Um, and the family drew, threw a giant birthday party for him to celebrate the 74 birthdays that they had missed. Oh, <laughs> um, and I would just say that I, uh, the, the, the latest, latest postscript is that I had the opportunity to send the book um, a couple weeks ago to various, those various relatives, and I, I sent them a note explaining um, what I learned about the story, et cetera, um, and directing them to certain parts of the book, and they were really, really excited to get, to get the book. So that was a gratifying uh, piece. Uh, I'm, I guess that's the, the benefit of working in 20th century history. I've always done 19th century history, is that you can um, actually meet the people that you, um, that you uh, write about. So thank you very much um, for your comments, and maybe we want to let others talk. Now, we'll hear my interview with Columbia professor Emmanuel Sada. I'm here with Emmanuel Sada, a historian and professor in the French department at Columbia University. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. Great. So let's start with the book's central question, which is, who's your daddy, right, as you spoke about at the panel. When and why do we ask this question, who's your daddy, and whose paternity is contested? At the panel, you talked about the resistance of science in paternity testing, whether that's from civil law or from the Catholic Church or social constraints. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about these various strains of resistance. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, one of the things that the book shows very well is that, you know, a much more biological definition of paternity has emerged mm -hmm. in the past 100 years. Uh, at the global level, not just in the US or in Europe, but also in other countries, especially in Latin America. And so if we look at the current situation, obviously we see DNA tests almost everywhere, not everywhere in the world, right? They are, for example, forbidden in France. You can't have, uh, DNA, you can't sell uh, DNA test kits uh, in France. Uh, but at the global level, let's say, there is this idea that, you know, uh, paternity is a biological link between a, uh, two human beings, right? Um, and uh, we have this now as a kind of a part of our common sense, common definition of paternity. And what the book shows, obviously, is the, uh, the rise of this idea and the uh, kind of acceptation of this uh, biological definition of paternity but it shows that there were many forms of resistance throughout the 20th century uh, before we arrived to that. So it was not obvious. And there, was, mm -hmm. there is obviously a very long tradition according to which paternity is both a social and an emotional uh, relationship between two individuals, not something that is necessarily anchored in um, you know, a biological uh, identity or in, in your DNA. Okay. So 
so the book's partly about this construction of a definition of paternity, right, which receives resistance from a number of different areas, but seems to draw on four interconnected areas which are also connected to these strains of resistance. The area of the legal, the biological, as you were just speaking about, Uh the social and the moral. And it seems to me that these areas vary to differing degrees depending on who's defining paternity. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the perhaps expected convergence of these areas in Mm -hmm. such a definition and what we might actually see depending on community. Yes. So actually, I think it's a little more complicated than that. Sure. In the sense that, uh, to some extent, the law and the legal um, sphere is actually where the other definitions play out. Mm -hmm. So it's not it's it's not one you know space um, parallel to the three other ones of moral, social, and biological. Mm -hmm. It's more like I think for me the space in which. Uh, those three different definitions of paternity play out and are being contested. And so what has happened and what the, th- the book shows pretty well is that even in the legal sphere, there has been a lot of resistance to, um, you know, throughout the, the 20th century to um, equating paternity with a biological definition. Mm-hmm. So uh, the book shows that ultimately in most countries that are being analyzed here again in the American continent and also in, in Europe, uh, in a way biology one, right? The biological definition of, of paternity has become more and more prevalent in the law. But still, it, the, the, there are many instances where you see that, you know, there were uh, 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 different definition, the Italian case that the, the mm-hmm. um, that, that, that uh, is a wonderful chapter uh, in the middle of the book about World War II, um, you know, a, World War, a post-World War II case shows that actually for a long time, even, you know, even when, you know, a biological definition of paternity was available to law courts, actually they decided that it had to do with uh, a form of, um, that, that paternity had to imply some kind of affective relationship, mm-hmm. right? between um, a man and her, uh, in, in, in this case, and his son. So um, that's, that's one thing I would say about this. Yeah, and I wonder if we could think a little bit about the types of social and moral um, resist, strains of resistance uh-huh. that uh, Nara talks about in the uh-huh. book, which I found very interesting as someone who grew up watching, I mean, Law and Order on television uh-huh. and, uh-huh. and these shows that just... Uh-huh rely on DNA evidence as a crutch uh-huh. to solve these crimes. Um, I found those very interesting. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the specifics um, or some of the cases in the book that, that dealt with those, including this Italian one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, for a long time, a very long time actually since Roman law, um, there was this presumption of paternity from the from the husband, right? So the idea was uh, because before DNA testing, obviously, the father was always uncertain mm-hmm. biologically, and the idea was that the marriage bond was also um, was 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 connected to a presumption of paternity. That is to say, basically, the definition of marriage was that two married people. Um, basically commit to and accept that they will raise a child together, mm-hmm. whichever you know biological origin of the child is right so independently of the of the 
real biological, I say real, right? So that's, that's mm-hmm. the whole point. Now we associate real with biological, right? With a, with a kind of sharing of DNA. Um, but uh, the, 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 the book shows, or you know, at least uh, starts from the point that for a long time, real paternity was not defined along this line. And real paternity was actually associated with marriage. So the Italian case is particularly interesting because um, it's a case of a racially, racially mixed child. Mm. It's a, a, a young boy who was born in um, a couple of two white Italian parents, mm. and he was himself racially mixed because his um, progenitor was actually a black African, uh, I'm sorry, black American soldier who uh, happened to be in Italy uh, at the time of, um, you know, during the liberation of Italy, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the whole case um, started when the husband of the wife decided that the son born of, of his wife was actually not his son because of this racial difference. He could not be his own son and mm-hmm. he tried to repudiate, tried to divorce his wife, which at the time was not uh, legal in Italy, mm-hmm. and to repudiate the son, right, which was actually not accepted. So at the end of the day, after uh, long uh, court proceedings, the court decided that actually he could not do that. He was still the father of the child, even though everybody recognized that there was some kind of racial impossibility. So this is what I mean by uh, the fact that, you know, those those um, those conflicts are being actually worked into the legal sphere. So the law decides what is in that case that there is actually uh, a reality and a truth claim that is that has to follow uh, you know the marriage contract and not the biological identity of the uh, of the people. So here marriage becomes prevalent in defining uh, paternity. Sure. Yeah. That is something that I had never considered as someone growing up in the late 20th and 21st century. So I found that fascinating. And also I find it really striking that DNA tests are outlawed in France. Uh-huh. I had no idea. Uh, it has to do with, you know, different kind of uh, traditions. One of them is the unavailability of the body. Mm. So you cannot, <laughs> there are lots of like, you know, uh, biological uh, element that you actually cannot, it's not just that you cannot um, trace their origin or identify them, but it's more like you can, for example, you cannot sell your blood in France. Oh. You cannot, uh, you can donate it, but you cannot sell it. You cannot sell, um, you know, your eggs or your sperm. Oh. It's, it has to be entirely on a, on a voluntary basis. And the idea oh. that the body is not available for the market. This is, you know, it's 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 not something that is part of a can ever be part of a market transaction. Right. And so uh, it's kind of the, the the idea that you cannot do DNA testing is linked to that. Mm-hmm. That is to say that the body is above any form of um, um, market transactions to some extent. That's why DNA. T- I mean, that's part of the reason. The other reason is that. Uh, um, um, I don't know actually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is because actually in France, a, t- a blood test like the the uh, are actually have been taken into account mm-hmm. in paternity suits in the past thirty years. So there is also a form of bio bio biologization of paternity in the French context, mm-hmm. even though the you know the um, affective and social ties are, are still very uh, prevalent. So let's say a man who is the husband of a of a of a, of a woman who has a child never can completely renounce the bonds of attachment with that child. Right. Even though the child is actually being uh, declared, um, you know, uh, biologically the child of someone else. So there are still, the, 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 the bonds uh, remain. 
And so this is, you know, that's something that is very interesting because all this comes from, again, a different, um, uh, a different conception of paternity, right? That predates uh, DNA testing, that predates um, the possibility of establishing this biological connection between two individuals. Mm -hmm. And so in a context in which, again, paternity was biologically uncertain, all these different beliefs about paternity had emerged, but they also crystallized to the point that they're still with us today. Great. So this is what the book shows, right? That, that you have competing uh, truth claims about the connections between people, but the older one resists and remain in a way in the, I mean, certainly in, in, in the law, because the law is also very, in a way, um, uh, you know, it has its own tradition, it has its own temporality, it has its own solidity, so it's difficult to, you know, uh, transform legal definitions um, easily. But also because I think um, um, those legal definitions also were linked to a kind of society in which um, um, kind of local knowledge of people, the idea that, uh, you know, you knew a father in the way that he was treating his child, right? Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the book refers often to this idea of possession of status, right? Mm -hmm. Which is based on the name, the reputation, and uh, the treatment that the father um, confers to his, to his child, right? Mm -hmm. So there is the idea that if a man gives his name to a child, um, which is one of the Argentinian cases that uh, the book uh, deals about, if a, if a man treats a child like his child and um, and if he's known in a certain kind of in a community right in his community if he's known as a father of the child then he is his child mm -hmm. no matter what right so this is not just marriage and the definition of marriage but right. it's also kind of a definition of relationship between people in a kind of a tight small-scale community where there is a local mm -hmm. knowledge about who is who right mm -hmm. and so this 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 um this very old uh, definition in Latin Roman law is called uh, nomen tractatus and fama. <laughs> this old definition of paternity, which again has to do with affective ties and social recognition, this has persisted. And I think uh, one of the interesting um, results of this book is that it shows how much those legal definitions have shaped our collective consciousness and have stayed with us, right? So. Uh, uh, I think a lot of the current debates about, um, you know, about um, parenthood, about sex and par same sex parenthood mm -hmm. uh, in Europe in, in particular, are also predicated on this idea that, you know, uh, parenthood is not just a biological link, right. right? That it is something that has to do with affects and with um, um, basically our social roles, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's what the book shows is that, you know, there are different ways of thinking about our relationships. And uh, it's not a question of being modern versus non-modern, right? So paternity right. through DNA testing and paternity as a biological link seems very modern, but on the other hand, it can be very, um, uh, you know, unprogressive if you want to make space for different kinds of parenthood and not, not just based on uh, sexual reproduction. Sure, yeah, that's a fascinating point. Um, and one that I think is really relevant now with all of the laws about same-sex parenthood and marriage being um, contested or mm -hmm. won in courts today. Mm -hmm. And this makes me think about both the idea of a more global, large scale, and also, as you mentioned, the small-scale, familiar, or tight-knit community, which um, 
which you talked about at the panel that Nara is writing this global history of paternity mm-hmm. testing, both from the perspective of these larger concepts, but also an individual global history that focuses on uh-huh. families. And I found as a methodology that was very, that was striking to me. Yes. So um, that's one of the, the aspects of the book that I found most interesting is actually its methodological um, the methodological innovations that uh, it was uh, suggesting, right? So it is a global history, and it shows very well. That's one thing that I found fascinating in the book. It shows how, um, you know, ideas about paternity or ideas about parenthood in general traveled from one place to the other through, you know, medias, mass media. So mm-hmm. a lot of the cases um, are being analyzed in um, in the way in which they have shaped, they have spread to some some extent. They have spread beyond their own, you know, communities and the and beyond the families that were, you know, uh, being um, investigated uh, at the time and the family ties that were being under scrutiny, let's say, in a in a in a law court. Uh, mm-hmm. So <clears throat> it, it shows very well, for example, how you know the, the testing were um, you know made in let's say in California produced in California and then traveled to Europe and back right or <laughs> and then to uh, to to South America and back and so that's one of the and through media through so there is a lot of um, you know discussion there are lots of discussions in the book of um, you know how uh, scientists discussed those ideas uh, in scientific journals and um, in congresses and stuff like that, but also our newspapers reporting on very famous cases or very striking cases like the you know the the, the, the Italian case, which somehow became a uh, very uh, popular uh, uh, story in uh, post World War II Europe. How those the newspapers spread basically both ideas about paternity and techniques, right? The techniques to test paternity. So that's that's kind of the aspect of globalization. At the same time, what the book does very well is to really get very deep into each case. So you have a whole family history. You understand the context in which um, you know um, um, specific stakes are developed, right? About about uh, the identification of a father. And so it's really kind of constantly a back and forth mm-hmm. between a very um, uh, in-depth um, analysis of, of very specific cases and their um, globalization uh, through through mass media. And mm-hmm. so that's one of the things I, I, I call this, uh, I think, a global micro history, right? It's a micro history that thinks about uh, cases that become that become global and how they spread again ideas, representations, but also techniques. So that's one of the most um, remarkable aspects of the book. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, so detailed, but at the same time making such incredible mm-hmm. claims about wider processes. It was mm-hmm. fascinating. So absolutely, thank, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Nara B. Melanich's book, Paternity, The Elusive Quest for the Father. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Stati Skorgoris' book, The Perils of the One. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.